0: Good morning, everybody. Occasionally, I give you a peek into the weird and wonderful, more weird than wonderful, uh, world that is my brain and the thoughts that circulate inside there. One of those weird thoughts is, I wonder what it would be like if all of a sudden God just snapped his fingers and every thought that we have in our heads just flowed right out of our mouths automatically. What would life be like? How embarrassing would that be for all of us? This is one of those moments when you don't look at the person beside you and say, Sweetheart, I think you already have that connection. (laughs) Not going to be a good day for you if you've already done that. What would it be like if we just blurted out everything we thought and felt? You know, If we were feeling tension in a room, if we were feeling affectionate towards someone... If we were feeling anger towards a person, can you imagine what that would be like? So imagine social settings, like you're in the lobby after church this morning, and you walk up to a couple of people you don't know. One of them, you know, does the right thing, and they introduce themselves, and you stop them and go, thanks, that's nice, it's good to meet you, I was actually more interested in meeting your friend who's standing beside you. (laughs) That's kind of awkward, it's really the truth we think sometimes, right? Right? We just don't say it. Or you're at a a gathering at somebody's home, a party, or a barbecue, or something, and you get caught with that person. Right? You're pinned. There's no escape, and they're telling you this long, drawn out story that you're absolutely not interested in. And you're in your mind, you're going, "I got to get away. I got to get." And there's no escape. See, with this connection, you just raise your hand. And you wave at the rest of the people who are there, and you go, please, somebody, rescue me before the last brain cell I possess is killed off. It's not going to help you, really, in the long run, is it? Right? Very few of us are actually that rude in life. We carefully weigh our words, most of us, before we speak and even doing that in spite of our best efforts we're not 100% successful at filtering our conversations we're nowhere near perfect in fact in the book of James he evaluates us this way he says we all make many mistakes anybody in on that one? For if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect. And we could also control ourselves in every other way. We can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit that we put in its mouth. And a small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even when the winds are strong. In the same way, the the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches. Tiny spark spark can set a great forest on fire, and among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness, corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but nobody. Contain the tongue. It is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father and sometimes it curses those who've been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this isn't right. Does a spring of water bubble out with both fresh water and bitter water? Does a fig tree produce olives or a grapevine? produce figs. No. And you can't draw fresh water from a salty spring. So I have never been a Green Bay Packers fan. It doesn't have anything to do with the message. I just thought I'd get you on my side. No, it does uh, the, uh, the fact is, though, I do love the stories about Vince Lombardi. Uh, in spite of him coaching for the Packers. Early on, and you've probably heard part of this story, but I don't think you've heard all of it. Uh, Early on in his coaching career with the Packers, they suffered this horrible loss, which makes the story good. And he gathered them in the locker room after this loss, and in his own inimitable style, had them all sit down, some of them kneeled down, and he said, gentlemen, we need to go back to the basics. Right? You know the story. Reached down, grabbed an object, held it up, and he said, Gentlemen, this is a football. And we know that part. What's not often told is that one of the big offensive linemen down in the front said, Ugh, slow down, coach. You're losing me. (laughs) Yeah, so the reason I tell that is because when I read this passage from James, every time I hit it, I kind of stop and go... It's about that basic, right? I mean, really, do we have to dig to that level of basicness in Scripture? Why does James devote that much real estate in five chapters to this? I mean, don't we all get it? I mean, our mouths get us in trouble. But then I start to think about how much trouble our mouths get us into, our words get us into. Virtually every problem that we encounter in our life or every problem we encounter in the church either originates with our words, we make it better or worse with our words, or it blows up because of the words that we choose when we're in that problem. And it doesn't have to be our spoken word. These days it can be what we write that can make the problem better or worse. And James' point here is not just to be overly negative about our words. He's trying to help us be aware, to grasp that there is a strong connection between what we say and who we are. And being Jesus' half-brother, it's not surprising that he's alluding back to, pointing us back to Jesus' words when he said, the mouth only speaks what the heart is full of. And I think Jesus' statement that James is alluding to, James takes that just even further in his teaching. James says, look, the tongue is a whole world of wickedness. It corrupts your entire body. The tongue is not just an indicator of the condition of your heart. It helps shape your heart. The literal translation of that word corrupt in the original language, it has a great word picture behind it. It's like it stains things. It's like the image of somebody who drinks red dye, and that dye begins to move through every molecule of your body. A while back, I uh, had a CT scan with contrast, which if you've never had one, it's just a whole interesting process. And I'm one of those weird people, when I have tests like that, I don't want to just have the test, I want to watch the test. You know, some people like just, you know, just cover my eyes, just get it done with. I like to watch. I like to learn. So I asked the nurse, like, is there a screen I can see this dye going through? And she obliged. So they put the needle in your vein, and they hang the bag, and it's this innocuous-looking stuff. It's probably radioactive. I could serve as my own nightlight or something. But she let me watch the screen as the scan was going on. And she said, you're going to feel the die and see it. Cool. You know, two-for-one movie. So the dye starts to move through and you feel this warmth going into your arm and then into your chest and then you feel the rush in your head Um, and I didn't do drugs as a kid so it's the closest I got and then it goes into all of your extremities and you can see it on the screen, at least I could that day and it was just this combination of cool and weird at the same time that's the very kind of image that James is saying to us, about the power of our words. They work their way through all of our body, through all of our life, and shape every aspect of who we are. Our words make us better or worse. Our words shape our relationship. Our words are what we use to make promises and protests that dictate a lot of our activities. Our words, some of them help us. Some of them get us in trouble. Some of them just flat-out embarrass us. Researchers uh, figure that we speak enough words that the average person, if you captured all the words they say in the course of a year, they would compile 54 800-page books. Think about that. Now, I know some of you are introverts. My best guess for you is that you would write six short stories. And if you're an introvert, you think the quality of those six short stories would be better than the 54 books the rest of us write. So, you know, if you're married, introvert, and extrovert, married to each other, there's the topic of conversation over lunch today. You know, are your 54 books better than their six short stories? Okay? But nonetheless, we say a lot of words in the course of a year. I think that's why James just says, look, in the course of all those words, we're going to make a lot of mistakes. If we could ever get to the point where we could just control our tongue, we would be mature. That's the meaning of that word perfect, not like without fault. But we'd be mature in our faith. We'd have an authentic faith. And we'd be able to control everything else in our life if we could just get control of our tongue. But nobody gets a pass on this one. Nobody gets to say, I don't struggle with this one. Maturity in speech comes slowly. Total mastery of the tongue is simply impossible. Because we all know that our mind is just not quick enough to stop every thought from coming out of our mouth that we think of. James then jumps in this passage to hyperbole to help us fully grasp this problem that we live with. When he says, you know, we can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, fish but nobody can tame the tongue. Now, I read that and I instantly think of the animals, the pets we've had through the years in our family with our kids growing up. And, you know, I think of all the dogs we've had, that we've had to housebreak. I think of the cats we've had. You can't train a cat, cats train you. That's been our experience. But I think the most interesting stuff for me about training animals has really been listening to stories, tracking some stories of animals that are trained to help people who have physical disabilities. Those stories fascinate me. There's been a group that I've loosely followed uh, who for 10 years have been training miniature horses to take the place of seeing eye dogs for people who are visually impaired. I just think that's cool. You know, I don't know who thought of this, but it's a brilliant idea. They do the same work as guide dogs. Uh, this picture on the screen is of a woman named Anne who is visually impaired, and this is her guide horse she has named Panda, which I think at some level has to be confusing for the horse. (laughs) It's kind of like naming your dog Stay. You know? Come here, Stay. It's going to confuse the dog. Think about it. Some of you will work on that the rest of the message. Uh, I just think the horses are a very cool idea. There's a lot of reasons behind it. One of the biggest ones is the horse lives a lot longer and is serviceable to the person for a lot longer than a dog, they say that horse will serve that person enough time that they would go through six or seven guide dogs in the same lifespan, which is phenomenal. These two have a great relationship. It's really fun to read their story. Uh, If you dig a little bit on the web, you're going to find some animals that are a little out there that people use to help with their disabilities. I know, it's just... it's. It's kind of odd that there's that weird stuff on the web. Who thought there'd be weird stuff on the web, right? Uh, Like this five-foot boa constrictor that belongs to a man named Daniel who lives in Seattle. Uh, The snake has been trained, or maybe it's just a natural gift that the snake has, that the snake senses when Daniel's about to have a seizure. And it squeezes him a little tighter than normal, letting him know, that he's about to have a seizure so he can take his medication or he can get to a safe place to have his seizure so he doesn't harm himself. I'm not so sure the snake is trying to help him. (laughs) Just my own opinion. But if it works for Daniel, I expect any day to read a story about how this snake ate Daniel after one of his seizures. It's my own skeptical nature. And then there's Jim with his parrot. This may be one of the best ones. Uh, Jim has bipolar disorder, and he accidentally somehow discovered that the parrot was sensing when he was about to uh, have an episode with his bipolar disorder and do some destructive behavior, and the parrot would get nervous too, and the parrot would start talking to him. So he trained the parrot to use phrases that were calming to him when the, he and the parrot would get nervous. Now catch this. So now when he gets headed towards an episode and the parrot senses that he's heading there, the parrot begins to say to him, it's okay, Jim. You're going to be okay, Jim. Breathe, Jim. And the parrot talks him down. It's just a very cool relationship between Jim and Sadie, his parrot, and it helps him. I think that's fantastic. So that's why he has that funky carrier he's designed on his back. The parrot goes everywhere with him and they have this great relationship. So picture this. Picture James, the writer of this letter we're studying, sitting down, cruising through the internet, looking at all this stuff. And he says, as he looks at his web browser, look at this. We can train all kinds of animals. We can train a horse to be a guide dog. We can train a parrot to help a guy with a bipolar disorder. We can pray for Daniel and his snake. But we can't tame the tongue. We can't tame this two ounce piece of meat that's caged in by teeth in our mouth. And through all of his analogies and all of his warnings, James just flat out says, the tongue is so wayward, it is impossible to fully control. And we're all in the same boat. In a moment of anger or nervousness or insecurity, we've all said something that we later regret. Something we wish we could take back. Something we've let out of our mouth and it's gotten the best of us. Some way we've stuck our foot in our mouth. And we've caused somebody else real pain because we just couldn't keep our mouth shut. Now, James' words aren't justification for us to just continue down that path. To give up on this struggle, for us to just look at people and go, I'm sorry, but that's just the way I am. James says clearly, we all know this is not right. It's not the way for us to live if we're pursuing an authentic faith. The Bible's filled with practical wisdom on how to face this challenge, how to learn to speak differently even though we'll never do it perfectly. So here's four ideas on how we can do that, just briefly. The first way is to choose grace. We're saved by grace. Let's speak with grace. Every day in our lives, multiple times, we have the option of being frustrated, hurt, irritated, angry, judgmental about something somebody else has done to us. We have a choice. Do we respond that way? Do we let our default mode be to be disappointed or let down in those situations, or do we choose to respond with grace? Even when they don't deserve it. Maybe especially because they don't deserve it. Because that's the meaning of grace. And in those moments, it'd be great to have this little verse from the Psalms handy and just pray it. Just say, God, take control of what I say In this moment, don't let me drift towards evil. Don't let me take part in acts of wickedness. Secondly, we can begin to learn to listen more than we speak. That's what James said in chapter 1, verse 19. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Some of us in our conversations are what I like to call gap fillers. We get nervous when we're in new situations. We get nervous when there's a lull in the conversation. And so we fill in the gaps rather than let there be silence. And we often, in filling in the gaps, say things that we'll regret later. When we fill in the gaps, we crowd out people who like to take a second or two to think. Let the question rest before they respond. We crowd out people who sometimes like to take a breath before they respond. Spending more time thinking and listening helps us avoid misunderstandings, helps us avoid wrong conclusions that lead to words we'll regret. Proverbs says the tongue can bring death or the tongue can bring life. People who love to talk are going to reap the consequences. We can speak differently if we learn to say nothing at all. That's a challenge. But sometimes we need to learn to do whatever it takes to keep from blurting out things that we might regret later. Even if that means literally biting your tongue. I said this in first service. Somebody walked out, walked past me holding their tongue with their hand. Whatever it takes. Count to 10, count to 20, count to 100 if that's what it takes. Nobody can fault you for words you never say. I love this. This is one of my favorite Proverbs. Even fools are thought-wise when they keep silent. With their mouths shut, they seem intelligent. (laughs) You could seem brilliant today in some situations if you just don't say a word. And fourth, watch your words. Listen to them before you even say them. Check them. Before you begin to say the words, ask yourself... Are these the words I want to be remembered by in this conversation? Are these words encouraging, constructive, kind? Are they truthful? Are they helpful? And if they're not, try to think of a different way to say them. Or maybe, revert back to number three, and just say nothing at all. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge appealing. And get this image? The mouth of the fool belches out foolishness. Belches out foolishness. Last time I taught on this passage from James 3 was a long time ago. My son was involved in a championship baseball game. His team was 25 and 1. They had won their division, and they were now in the championship game of their division tournament. They'd lost one time all year, and in the championship game, they were facing the only team that had beaten them all year. Now, I'm going to spare you all the details that a proud father can tell, and I'll just try to get to what's absolutely relevant to today. As the game progressed, that championship tournament game, it became obvious that the umpires were calling an extremely unfair game. And it felt to me like the home home plate umpire especially was making bad calls that were directed right at me as one of the coaches. They were pointed right at me. Just me. As if he were on a personal vendetta with me. Somewhere in the fourth or fifth inning of that game, I got vocal. And I felt I was making justifiable complaints and concerns with what I thought was very reasonable tone of voice and surgically precise language. He must have heard it differently. What he said back to me uh, conveyed to me what I interpreted as his general lack of knowledge about the rules of baseball and his very limited vocabulary. And the exchange between us was not very pretty from about 90 feet away. From that moment on, I was on a tirade. And it was an inning or so later that it reached a point where he stopped the game, stepped out from behind home plate, pointed a finger at me, and said, one more word out of you, One more word, and you're out of the game. I chose that moment to speak with the greatest clarity, forcefulness, and diction that I have ever used before or since. When I looked at him and said, Fine. He looked back at me and said, You're out of the game. I started walking towards the bench. Marching is more like it. He followed me and said, and one more word after that, and you're not only out of the game, you're out of the park. I turned on my heel. I looked at him and went, I dropped my hand and walked to the stands, sat down beside my wife and kept my mouth shut for the rest of the game. Three things you need to know about that ejection are these. When I discovered after the game that that home plate umpire was an uncle to several boys on the opposing team, I felt instantly vindicated for everything I had done. I felt like I was in the right. You with me? I mean, I I expected both servants to explode in applause. Be proud of me. That, yeah, that no, that was just patronizing, really. Um, All of that justified feeling I had dissipated with these next two facts. The second fact is, I was reminded that the team I was coaching was six-year-old boys playing t-ball. It's true. (laughs) Not making this up. The third fact is that as the team and the parents gathered around, my six-year-old son reminded everybody who was listening that they were still invited to church the next morning. (laughs) Where we would celebrate the team's wonderful season, and I would be teaching on James chapter 3, about how to control your tongue. (laughs) I was assured in that moment of a large crowd on the first three rows to listen to the coach talk about how to control your tongue. And the other coach assured me that if I didn't mention being thrown out of the game, he would. Even though he'd never been in a Protestant church in his life, he was sure the church would be glad to hear the story. We all stumble in many ways. And our words leave marks that can't be easily erased. James calls us to take a look at the words we say every single day. Words that we just let spill out of our mouth without thinking about it. Words that can hurt people. Unintentionally and sometimes intentionally. Of all of our body parts, our tongue screams the loudest for God's grace. And without His grace, we have absolutely no hope of making any progress, of making any change towards an authentic faith. And though we'll never be perfect with His grace, we can speak differently. Even the saltiest heart can begin to change, can begin to speak words that are gracious, that are attractive. And by God's grace, we can come to a place where we begin to understand how to respond to everyone in every situation. Even a t-ball umpire who's stealing a t-ball father's dream.